Lord Jesus, we thank you for your death for us. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the plans that you had before time began to send your only Son. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the paraclete, the helper, the one to come alongside, to guide us into all truth that now indwells us by the power of the salvation realized by the sovereign hand of the triune Godhead. We thank you for this morning, Heavenly Father, that you have ordained before time began as a means for us to grow in our understanding and in our love and appreciation for the great gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have spoken, you have not left us blind without a testimony, but through the course of the entire history of mankind, your word has been there ever present to lead and to guide us into truth and to wake us up from the stupor of sin and to provide sight to blind spiritual eyes and to speak life to the hearer that this is the way walk ye in it. This is Jesus Christ, your salvation and your hope. This is the chief end of man to bring glory to my name by walking in the footsteps that I will give you grace and power to walk in as I change your heart and soul by the touch of my almighty hand. We thank you for this message that you have given us. I pray now as we turn to your word that it would come alive in our hearts, that we would love it more deeply as a result of this service, that we would understand it more clearly, and that we would proclaim it more boldly. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Praise God. What a gift and opportunity it is this morning to open up the scriptures and to behold the timeless truth of God's word from the Old Testament to the New Join me, if you would, in turning in your Bible to Jonah chapter 2. Our text today will be Jonah 2, verse 10, through chapter 3, verse 5, in our Jonah series. The title of this morning's message is Word for Word. Word for Word. This idea comes from a reiteration or repeat of the call of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah again to call him to his God-ordained ministry to reach the lost, particularly in Nineveh, with the message of salvation. The aim of this morning's message is to feature the power and centrality of the Word of God. To feature the power and the centrality of the Word of God. So with your Bible open to Jonah chapter 2, would you stand with me? Out of reverence for the Word of God. Again, Jonah 2.10 to 3.5. Here we have the infallible word of Christ. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, to the least of them. 
This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Our title today, Word for Word, reflects the prominence of the Word of God in this section of our text in Jonah, not to mention the entire account of this great book, this short but powerful minor prophet. The Word of God comes to Jonah mercifully a second time. In our passage today, 3.1, the Word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, same instructions as before, Arise and go to Nineveh. This is the mercy of our God, giving Jonah a second chance, as it were. And this, this second time, word for word, reiterating his missionary call, the Lord calls him, the Lord instructs him, Arise and go to these people with the word I send you. The word of God is then featured in Jonah's ministry to the Ninevites, declaring again, word for word, the revelation that he had received. This is God's word for you. He preached to the lost in Assyria, the capital city in Nineveh. Jonah's opportunity to do so was secured by the word of the Lord, giving specific, specific instructions to his creature, a giant fish, who had dutifully, obediently swallowed and vomited up Jonah on the command from its creator. We're reminded of this in chapter 1, verse 16. Or backing up, we see the fate of Jonah in verse 15. So they, the mariners on the ship, picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. The sea ceased from its raging. Verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And notice verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So the message here is just like the Lord appointed his gospel and the people of Nineveh unto salvation by the proclamation of his word, so he appointed this gigantic creature to swallow his servant. And later in verse 10, the Lord spoke to this fish and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. This creature had dutifully and obediently swallowed and vomited Jonah up on the command of its cre from its creator. The word of the Lord so affects, we go on to see in our text today, the word of the Lord so affects the inhabitants of the pagan city Nineveh where Jonah is sent that they immediately repent in sackcloth, fasting in response to the authority featured in the word of God spoken by the prophet. What is sackcloth? It's clothes that symbolize mourning and utter humiliation. Rags, as it were, shedding the comforts of life and the things that give us a sense of identity and pride, putting all sense of self-value aside to value something more important than self, namely, the word of the Lord proclaimed by His prophet. This is what is pictured in their response to the word of the Lord in their fasting, and in their donning of this sackcloth, they do so in response to the authority featured in the mouth of Jonah, the Lord's prophet, who proclaimed that judgment was coming in 40 days. 1 Peter 1, 24-25 reminds us, should we doubt the power and centrality of the word of God these days, in our day? The apostle reminds us, a parallel of Peter, of Peter, or of Jonah, excuse me, Peter 
Or Jonah prefigures Peter in many ways, and from the words of the apostle, we have this promise, all flesh is like grass, 1 Peter 1, 24, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Peter goes on to say in verse 25, this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter is declaring to his hearers that the same experience the Ninevites of old has now visited them. They have heard the word of God. The centrality and power of the word has been featured. They have been called to repent of their sin, lest they die and be judged. And they have responded. And Peter reminds them that everything else in this life, temporally speaking, will wither and fade and fail and burn. But the word of the Lord remains forever. So again, remember its power and centrality. With that introduction, I submit to you in our text today, in these six verses, the word of God is featured three times. And there's three different types of encounters, you could say, with the word of God. Number one, we see the encounter of the word of God with nature. So the word of God and nature will be uh, the first major point of this morning's uh, message. Secondly, God's Word and His servant. We see the encounter of Jonah with the Word of God. And thirdly, let's explore in some depth God's Word and the lost, the encounter that the Ninevites had with the Word of God. First of all, nature, pictured or symbolized, represented with the fish. This fish encounters the Word of God and dutifully obeys, as we have said. Again, Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. A very simple sentence. The Lord spoke His word, and His creature immediately obeyed. This is the relationship, in a nutshell, between the word of God and creation itself, nature itself. And we are reminded in this passage of the very beginning of the Bible. Essential to the account of Jonah is the very framework upon which the entire Scriptures are built. Turn with me to Genesis 1. The framework upon which the entire Scriptures are built is, in fact, the relationship between, between God's Word and creation itself. We as creatures, the animals as creatures, the entire material realm, the entire created cosmos, its relationship to the Word of God, the declaration of this truth, this reality, is the foundation of all that is revealed following. Genesis 1.1, not unfamiliar words to you, I trust, but nevertheless central and powerful, and therefore do our attention today. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And one might ask, how? We see the answer very quickly in verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And so there we have it. The relationship between God's Word and the fact that light exists. God spoke, and there was light. In verse 5, we see this relationship continuing. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, again, verse 6, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the water from the waters. 
And God said in verse 9, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. God said, verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is seed. God said, (coughs) verse 14, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. God said, verse 20, let the waters swarm with the sea creatures. God said, verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind. And finally, the crown of creation, verse 26, Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. I was listening to an author this week expounding on the profundity, how important and amazing it is, the relationship between the Word of God and creation itself. And he asked this question, do we live our lives as if in light of this truth, that God created this world out of nothing by divine speech. Do we live like that? Do we, on a consistent basis, live in light of that truth? I submit to you, Jonah, in the first half of his account, did not. How ironic is it that a fish would obey, but a creature, a sentient human being, who can hear and process and reason, who can study and look at the earth around us and see that the heavens declare His glory as Mark read to us this morning and the firmament shows His handiwork, how ironic is it that we would not obey? This reveals the deep abiding condition of our own sin. We truly are fallen. Of all the creatures that ought to hear and understand and respond most consistently, most broadly, most powerfully, most cons- most, uh, um, with the most amount of gratitude and worship would be the ones made in His image, we would think. It's good for us to see the relationship between the Word of God and creation, to see the standard by which we ourselves ought to be held to account. When God speaks, do we listen? He spoke to a fish and the fish immediately responded. He spoke to the sea and immediately hurled its storms against the ship according to God's instructions. He speaks to us today, repent and believe. If you have not this day, will you listen? This is the message from Jonah. The relationship between the Word of God and creation is further expounded in Scripture. We won't go there today, but in Colossians 2, 15 through 20, in recent months, we've expanded on this idea that not only does the Word of God is the Word of God responsible for creation in the first place, but it is the Word of God that upholds creation. As it says, Jesus Christ upholds creation by the Word of His power. The very nature and character of the Godhead, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, are bound up in creation realities. It is the Word of Christ that is responsible for the origin of this universe, and it is the Word of Christ that is responsible for its maintenance. The fact that it continues to obey the Word of God is testimony to the relationship between what God has spoken and everything around us. This is a recurring theme in Jonah. 
we go back to chapter 1, verse 4, we see the relationship between God's Word and creation, in this case, as evidenced in a storm. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. God hurled the storm, the storm obeyed. The storm, in this case, the elements of nature, were an instrument in our sovereign God's hands. Chapter 2, verse 10, we have our example this morning. But in, in chapter 1, verse 17, as we've mentioned, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. In other words, the superintendent of creation, the Lord of the universe, said, Mr. Fish, I have a job for you, gave him instructions and sent him swimming on his way. And he looked neither to the right nor to the left, but it went immediately to the ship about to capsize in this great sea and was there exactly at the moment when Jonah crashed into the waves to swallow him before he passed away from loss of breath. We go on to see the evidence of the Lord's sovereignty in His Word, the relationship between His Word and creation in the last chapter, chapter 4. It says in verse 6, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head. Later we see verse 7, But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. You see the same language as God appointing the fish. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And so we see the Lord using these aspects of creation to discipline His Son. The Lord is showing His love for Jonah as we'll expound next week in that whoever the Lord loves, as a father the Son in whom He loves, He chastises. And in this case, He appoints Elements, again, of creation to do exactly this. A creature, a worm, a scorching heat, a plant are all employed by God's sovereign hand to uh, demonstrate the, uh, in this account the relationship between His Word and nature. How do we apply this today? Well, it ought to raise a question in our mind. What is the Lord's purpose in appointing the hurricanes that are crashing over and over again against our shores? It seems providential to me that we are in a text of Scripture, unbeknownst to us, that these hurricanes were appointed by the Lord to strike our shores, and here we are in Jonah. And central to the theme of Jonah is that God uses storms. He hurls them at times against different individuals for purposes of drawing their attention to His Lordship and sovereignty over creation, to make them realize that they are desperately in need of His favor. And if they do not bow before His Lordship, the storm could easily destroy them. Are we learning this lesson today in our land? Do we consider that the elements of nature, everything from a worm to a fish to a plant to a scorching east wind to a storm, are directly appointed by the Lord to instruct us in His ways? This is the relationship of God's Word and nature that is emphasized in Jonah's Gospel. In Romans 1, 28-32, we see the effects to the negative of not acknowledging that God is the sovereign over nature. We might ask ourselves, what does it look like when mankind turns a blind eye to the fact, to the relationship between God's Word and all creation? Well, it's tragic indeed. 
It's horrific, in fact. It says that when man exchanges the glory of God, his wrath or exchanges the glory of God for the glory of creation, when they refuse to see him as its sovereign, the wrath of God is then revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, verse 18, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since creation, the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. But what happens if in our rebellion, in spite of this inarguable testimony before us, if we blind our eyes to it? Well, it says in verse 23, For those who exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, God gives them up, verse 24, in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 28, just touching on these aspects of what is at stake in our acknowledging the truth that God is sovereign over creation, we lose the aspect or we lose the notion of created order. Our social systems fall apart. Our society begins to implode and we begin to embark upon a course of absolute self-destructive behavior. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. To do what ought not to be done, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boasters, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The Bible is extremely clear. We must affirm the relationship between God's Word and all creation and nature. The consequences of denying this are dire indeed. However, on the flip side, the rewards, the benefit of acknowledging it is glorious. It leads to repentance and faith, to order and peace, to blessings and uh, a glorious life of worship to the Lord recognizing where we fit in His plan and how we need not fear what happens tomorrow because all is under His charge in this great world, in this cosmos indeed that we live in. So that's the first encounter of the Word of God expounded in our text today, the Word of God and nature. Secondly, let's consider how the Word of God encounters Jonah in verses 1 through 3 of Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. The word of the Lord. I asked this question before, but there is a contrast between the obedience of the fish and the disobedience of of Jonah, right back to back in the text. It makes us, it, it draws out this convicting question, how often is creation more obedient than his people? How often, or how, how is it, we ask ourselves, or 
Uh, why is it the case? And the answer, of course, is because of sin that the creation itself groans and yearns for the revelation of the sons of God, but now is committed to this decay as a result of man's fault, his sin, and that creation, it seems almost like it wasn't fair, but it became a participant in the degradation of the original sin of mankind. And yet creation still to this day bows before its Lord and worships and serves Him as it were. The scriptures say the trees of the field clap their hands and the earth shakes at the Lord's command. It swallows His enemies and storms uh, And storms accomplish his decrees across the seas and upon the earth. But yet we have his servant, sometimes so blind, that he does not take his word seriously. Yet the Lord is merciful to his servants. And we see this in the text because the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. The fish only needed to hear it once and he obeyed. But God was gracious to Jonah and came to him a second time and commanded him, Rise, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Uh, Barnes, the commentator, says, Nothing should be more sacred to the preacher of God's word than truth and simplicity and inviolable sanctity in delivering it. Nothing should be more sacred to the preacher of God's word than truth, simplicity, and inviolable, inviolable sanctity in delivering it. In other words, what Barnes is getting at is the Word of God in this form, in its propositional, revelatory form, is something that is uniquely entrusted to those who are made in God's image. Yes, the fish obeyed, but the fish cannot tell you the way of salvation. Yes, the trees give glory to God, but they cannot preach to you from Romans chapter 1. Yes, the earth and the storms at sea, they declare the Lord's glory in a sense, but they cannot give you that special revelation, the knowledge that Christ, God the Son, has come in flesh. The great privilege of understanding, bearing, and sharing that information is given to but one creature in God's creation, mankind himself. And therefore, we ought to consider the weightiness, the seriousness of that responsibility. Do we take for granted or do we treasure the fact that this revelation is given to us to treasure, to steward, to understand, and to proclaim in a way that none other of God's creation could ever hope to accomplish? There is sanctity in it. There's something holy about it. The simplicity of God's word that is unencumbered by the needless philosophical sinful musings of man. The clear teaching of God's unadulterated, unalterable word. Do we value it? Do we saturate ourselves with it? Do we act upon it? Do we take it seriously? Do we love it? Do we declare it faithfully, consistently? This is the message that we can learn from Jonah, and do we do so in truth? In the grace of God, Jonah comes around to these values, and Jonah obeys the second time. May I submit to you this foreshadows uh, Peter once again, who in spite of his denial of Christ, was restored unto ministry. 
and Matthew, Jesus refers to Peter as the son of Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonas, and he says that God has revealed to him this great revelation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and there is nowhere else to turn. The end of the book of John, after Peter, no doubt feeling ashamed and realizing again his call as an apostle, is reinstated to ministry by the same voice of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who forgives his sin having paid for them on the cross and he recommissions him. He says in 21.15 of John's Gospel, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. In verse 16, the word comes to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? You might ask yourself why the discrepancy son of Jonah or son of John. There are different theories to that and might be a manuscript issue. But what Jesus does in these cases is he refers to him in the context of God's providential lineage in his life, calling him to the ministry. He says again in verse 17, a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter confesses his love for Christ in verse 18, truly, truly, he gives him instructions, Jesus says, and a prophecy. I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And like Jonah, Peter did follow Jesus Christ all the way to a death, a martyr's death, all the way to persecution. Just like Jonah, having heard the word of the Lord, reinstating him to ministry, followed the word of the Lord all the way to the pagan, fearful, terroristic city of Nineveh. And so we see the grace of the Lord giving his word to his servant a second time, saying, Arise and go. Speaking of those words, arise and go, we see yet another parallel between Jonah and Peter. This is a surprising call that Jonah has received. Go to Nineveh, a pagan Gentile city, and announce to them the word of the Lord. That in 40 days, the implication is, barring repentance, judgment is coming upon you. Well, a surprising call in Acts chapter 10 came to Peter as well. Peter again, in the spiritual lineage of Jonah, is at Caesarea. There was a man, Cornelius and Centurion, was known as the Italian, what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. So this is a Gentile whose heart has been prepared to receive the gospel. Peter is called to reach him with this gospel, and this calling comes in the form of a unique dream, as you recall, Acts 10.13. There came a voice to Peter, after verse 12, all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air were lowered to him in this sheet. And this voice said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have not eaten anything that is common or unclean. This instruction came a second time he received the vision. A third time he received the vision. And then he received instructions again in verse 20, Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent you. And Peter, like Jonah, 
having received the word of God multiple times, does obey in fact. The next day, verse 23, he arose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So notice that place, Joppa, the jumping off port from which Jonah left initially to flee to Tarsus, Tarshish, but then had a change of heart and went back to where God instructed him. Now the calling of these two men was similar. God's word came to his servant and said, go into all the world and make, in as many words, make disciples of all nations, teaching them my word. We remarked that text, we remarked on that text last week in light of the baptism of Donnie and Judah. And we seek to be obedient to that text today. But the obedience that God has called us to, to go to an unbelieving Gentile pagan world and bring the gospel has been preceded by Jonah as a picture and by the fulfillment of Jonah, if you will, in Peter and his calling to go. And so Peter went and he eventually begins to preach in Acts 10.34 and his message was the New Testament fulfillment and equivalent of the message of Jonah to Nineveh. And Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. And for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened through all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. But God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. He goes on to preach the gospel to them, proclaiming the word of Jesus Christ. And He closes verse 43, To Him, that is to Christ, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. All the prophets bore witness, especially and including, in light of our study today, Jonah. Jonah bore witness that God shows no partiality, but even in wicked Nineveh, that anyone who would believe in Him would receive forgiveness of sins. And so as Peter arose and went, so Jonah arose and went. And the call for us today is to look to these examples to arise and to go. And to bring to the Gentiles in our influence, as it were, the unbelievers, that is to say, in our influence, as it were, the message that in Jesus is forgiveness of sins through His name. How did this message affect the lost? Final point this morning, God's word and the lost. How did the Ninevites encounter this word from God's servant, Jonah? Back in our text, Jonah 3, the response is remarkable indeed. Let's read again verses 4 and 5. Jonah began to go into the city, going a a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. From the greatest of them to the least of them. God's word and the lost. When God's word was encountered by the lost under these conditions, as Jonah was preaching, a miracle took place and they believed in the one true 
God. Notice, first of all, that this is a city. Not just any city, in fact, but a great city. Twice in our text, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, this message that I tell you. Again, in verse 2, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Think of this. One man is calling out against an entire city, and not just any city, but a great city. The pride and joy of secular humanism, if you, if you will. It was the latest version of the attempts to rebuild Babel. It was man collecting their efforts and energy and ambitions together to rebelliously declare their independence from God and to build something amazing, to conquer the world and take dominion of it, not in Christ, but apart from Him, to prove themselves as God, to do what they will, to try to, in, in, to, try to engineer an environment around them that they didn't have to worry about sin anymore, but they could have a prosperous, joyful, fulfilling life in this great, advancing, conquering, powerful, magnificent city of Nineveh. And one man is called to go to that city. And his message isn't, God loves you and has an amazing plan for your life. His message isn't, Even everyone in Nineveh has a God-shaped hole in your heart. I want to point you to something that you don't even realize you need, but can add to your wealth and power real spiritual joy. That's not his message. His message is, in 40 days you will be destroyed. He's one man against an entire city, an exceedingly great city. How is it that the word of one man brought this proud city in sackcloth, humiliation, repentance, and ashes to their knees? It's because he bore the word of God. It was the word of God, not Jonah. Jonah's personality was one of cantankerous hesitation. He didn't have a good attitude the entire time. It wasn't anything about Jonah that was compelling, convincing, or charismatic that convinced this city to have a change of heart. It was the Word of God that reduced this Babel to its knees, that caused them to cry out in anguish of soul. We've studied in Hebrews 11 what Augustine calls the difference between the city of God and the city of man. And there are times in covenant history where the clash is very dramatic between the city of God and the city of man. One lone prophet brings the scriptures to bear and the city of man falls to its knees. A picture of what will happen on the final day of judgment when Jesus Christ, king and conqueror, king of kings of the city of God, will finally judge every rebel at his great white throne. But there are these times in the meantime when God shows this to be the case by powerfully backing up His Word with evidence that gives glory to Him, that if it is His will and choosing, He can reduce Nineveh to a groveling, humiliated bunch of people who recognize their sin, call out for a Savior, and believe in the one true God. This notion of 40 days, this concept of 40 days in verse 4 is not insignificant either. 
Jonah went into the city a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You could almost see an implicit mercy here. But by and large, Jonah is just preaching judgment. These days, we are told that we should soften the blow of the Scriptures, and preaching judgment is something that most uh, pulpits in this land seem to have an allergic reaction to. Preach judgment? I can't imagine that growing churches. But notice the message that Jonah preached is just basically a sentence of doom. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But if you look at it closely, that 40 days might imply mercy. Why not now? Why not tomorrow? Perhaps in that 40 days, if we clothe ourselves with sackcloth, if we recognize our sin, if we humble ourselves before the sovereign, if we cry out to Him and throw ourselves at His mercy, Perhaps he will spare us. And this is indeed what happened. This 40 days reminds us of the 40 days of rain that fell in Genesis 7-4 at Noah's flood. Reminds us of the 40 days of waiting on Mount Sinai when the law was given in Exodus 24-18. And the second copy of the law given in Exodus 34-28, each preceded by 40 day uh, frames of time. Reminds us of the spies returning, having spied out the land for 40 days. And the unbelieving response of the people. So in Numbers 14, 34, the people are condemned to 40 years of wandering. Reminds us of Goliath taunting Israel for 40 days. And 1 Samuel 17, 16, or Ezekiel 4, 6, the prophet lying on his side for 40 days. Representing 40 years of pending judgment on the people again. But Then we get to the New Testament. And we see that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. And Matthew 4.2. And we see that the time frame between the resurrection and the ascension was 40 days in Acts 1.3. And we look at these passages and we see that this 40 days is significant. It pictures judgment, yet also salvation. Now what we deserve is total annihilation. But perhaps in this 40 days, God could have mercy on us if we turn to Him. And so this is how the message was received by the lost. They took to heart the Word of God, and God had mercy on Nineveh. They believed God. They displayed the fruits of repentance. They believed in Him. They called a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the next time we're in this passage, we'll see how, in fact, that was true. From everyone to the king to the cattle. Everyone from king to cattle was was, uh, uh, humbled and brought to this point of seeking God for their salvation. Let me close with a a quote from Augustine in light of the message of Jonah. Augustine asked this question of this passage. He says, was this the anger of God or rather his mercy? Who doubts that the most merciful Father willed by terrifying willed by terrifying to convert, not to punish by destroying? As the hand is lifted to strike and is recalled in pity that is pulled back, when he who was about to be struck is terrified, so it was done to that city. Will any of God's warnings now move our great Babylon to repentance? That it be not ruined? 
So what Augustine confesses here in the case of Nineveh is that the hand of the Lord was hovering over the city as if to strike. Depending on their response, it would prove the hand of wrath or the hand of mercy. And you can see in your mind's eye the hand of God moving from this position of striking, perhaps like a fist, and upon the repentance circling around underneath and bearing this city up. And Augustine, who lived in the decline of the great Babylon Roman Empire, who was drunk with its own sinfulness, was asking the question. He says, will this great Babylon, will it move our great Babylon to repentance? That is, will the word of the Lord be heeded or will we be destroyed? Eventually, Nineveh was destroyed. Nahum recounts that history. Eventually, Rome was destroyed. The great Babylon in Revelation will be destroyed. And our nation will be destroyed if it does not repent. But let us pray that through the preaching of the word, that that hand of judgment would come underneath to lift us up as we repent and cry out to God. Because we certainly see in our text today that he can bring an entire civilization to its knees. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we are so thankful for the message of hope in your scripture. We thank you for the clear-cutting conviction that strikes us and cuts us to the quick and encourages us towards obedience and faith. We thank you, Lord, for the testimony of your power and for the reminder of the centrality and authority of your holy word. May we believe it and proclaim it, and proclaim it in our day. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the urgency of the prophet as to the Ninevites. So as we encounter those in the course of our day, we might see them in the dire straits of imminent spiritual destruction that if they do not repent, they will certainly perish that we might bring the message of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Lord, we pray for America. We pray for our land. We confess that our country, Lord, is drunk with the sins of Babylon. Lord, we confess that we have strayed from our once strong commitment to you as a people. We confess, Lord, that we have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness and exchanged the glory of, the God, of God for creaturely, passing, temporal, and self-fulfilling things. Lord, we pray that you would bring repentance to this land and raise up from the pulpits once again the clear word of 40 days, window of repentance or destruction, that these ideas, Lord Jesus, might once again jar us from the stupor of sin and cause out to cry to the only way, truth, and life. I am lost. Save me, dear Jesus, by the power of your shed blood. It's in that holy name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.